Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Mr Richard Graham. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, I'm sure the whole House will join me in wishing Major Tim Peake well as he begins his six-month stay at the International Space Station. We all watched his exciting takeoff yesterday, and as the first Briton to visit the International Space Station, it signals a landmark in this country's involvement in space exploration, and I'm proud that the government took the decision to fund it. We wish him the best of luck. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Richard Graham. Can I welcome today's fall in unemployment to 5.2%, the lowest in almost 10 years? Mr Speaker, stalking is a horrible crime. Dr Ellen Aston, a GP in Gloucester, resident in Cheltenham, was harassed for several years by a stalker who slashed her tyres, hacked her water pipe, cut off her gas supply and put foul items in her letterbox. She and her family suffered dreadfully. The judge in sentencing said if he could give more than the maximum five years, he certainly would have done. Mr Speaker, my honourable friend for Cheltenham has raised sentencing guidelines with the Justice Secretary. Would my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, today give his support for greater flexibility and longer sentencing where it is clear that a stalker is a real menace? Well, first of all, let me say how much I agree with my honourable friend that stalking is a dreadful crime. That is why we've introduced two new stalking offences during this Parliament. I'll certainly make sure that the honourable member for Cheltenham has his meeting with my honourable friend, the Justice Secretary. I can't comment on the individual case without looking at it in more detail, but we are taking the action necessary and will continue to do so. On unemployment, I'm sure the whole House will want to welcome the fact that there are half a million more people in work in our country in the last year alone. We've had wages, wages growing above inflation every month for a year and the claimant count is at the lowest level since 1975. I'm sure this will have a welcome right across the House. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Could I start by wishing you, all members of the House, and all staff here, and Major Tim Peake, who's not on the planet at this time. <laughs> a, very, a very happy Christmas and a peaceful New Year. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The, Mr Speaker, the number of days that patients are being kept in hospital because there is nowhere safe to discharge them to has doubled since the Prime Minister took office. On the 4th of November, I asked him if he could guarantee there will be no winter crisis in the NHS this winter. He didn't answer then. I wonder if he'd be able to help us with an answer today. Yes. Well, well, first of all, let me join the right hon. Gentleman and be very clear that I don't want to wish him the season's greetings. I want a full happy Christmas for the uh, uh, right hon. Gentleman and everyone uh, in the House. Um, He asked specifically about the NHS, and let me answer specifically about the NHS. The average stay in hospital has actually fallen since I became Prime Minister from five and a half days to five days. And one of the reasons for that is that we kept our promises on the NHS. We put an extra £12 in in the last Parliament, and we'll be putting £19 billion in cash terms in the NHS in this Parliament. Jeremy Corbyn. 
Mr Speaker, just for the record, I did say Happy Christmas. But maybe the Prime Minister wasn't listening at the time. Um, If he's so happy, Mr Speaker, about the National Health Service, could he explain then why he's decided to cancel the publication of NHS performance data this winter? And there was a time when the Prime Minister was... um, all in favour of transparency, and it's not that long ago. In fact, it was 2011 when he said, and I quote, information is power. It lets people hold the powerful to account, giving them the tools they need to take on politicians and bureaucrats. Is it because the number of people being kept waiting on trolleys in A&E has gone up more than fourfold that he doesn't want to publish these statistics? Well, 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 first of all, the data that he quoted in his first question was not published before this government came to office. That's right. And let me quote him some data about the NHS. Let me just take an average day today compared with five years ago when I became Prime Minister. On an average day in the NHS today, there are 4,400 more operations. There are 21,000 more outpatient appointments. Yes, there are challenges in A&E, but there are 2,100 more people seen within four hours today than five years ago. And there is more data published in our NHS than there ever was under Labour. Mr Mr. Speaker, there are huge pressures on the NHS and they are largely due to the pressures on the adult social care system, which is under enormous stress at the moment. It indeed has been huge cuts in adult social care because of cuts in local government funding. The NHS Chief Executive Simon Stevens has called for a radical upgrade in prevention and public health. So would the Prime Minister agree with me that cutting these crucial services is indeed a false economy? Well, first of all, we're increasing the money that is able to go into social care by having the 2% precept on the council tax so that local councils can spend more. But I notice that the Right Honourable Gentleman mentions Simon Simon Stevens. Our NHS plan is Simon Stevens' plan. The NHS, for the first time, got together and wrote their plan. They asked us for £8 billion. They asked for the money up front. We committed to that plan, unlike Labour at the last election, and we funded it up front. And that's why we see a bigger, better NHS. But none of this would be possible, including the action on social care that we're taking with the Better Care Fund. None of this would be possible without the growing economy that we have and the more jobs we've created. Mr Speaker, the problem is to do with adult social care. This morning, the NHS Confederation said on BBC Radio 4, and I quote, cuts to social care and public health will continue to pile more pressure on hospital and will worsen deficits in the acute sector. What was announced on the social care in the autumn statement falls well short of what's needed. The Health Foundation estimates a funding shortfall of £6 billion will be in place by 2020. How is the government planning to meet that shortfall? Well, I'm glad the right honourable gentleman listens to the Today programme. He might bother to go on it one of these days. That would be uh, a bit of, bit of transparency, a bit of sunlight would be very welcome. If he wants to swap... Um, 
if he wants to swap quotations, this is what the chairman of the Local Government Association says. The Local Government Association has long called for further flexibility in the setting of council tax, and today's announcement will go some way to allowing a number of councils to raise the money needed. 1.5 billion more increase in the Better Care Fund announced today is good news. It's this government that funded the NHS. They didn't. It's this government that set up the Better Care Fund. They opposed it. It's this government that has the strong and growing economy. And I note, question four, and still not a welcome for the unemployment figures. Mr Speaker, the issue of adult social care and cuts in local government spending are very much the responsibility of central government. Can he confirm that NHS trusts are forecasting a deficit of £2.2 billion this year? And indeed, I understand, and the Prime Minister, as part of the Oxford anti-austerity movement, will be concerned about this, that his own local health care trust is predicting a £1.7 million deficit. There is a problem of NHS funding. Has he, not, has he forgotten the simple maxim that prevention is cheaper and better than cure? Yeah. How can he possibly complain about NHS funding when his party didn't commit to fund the Stevens Plan? spending £19 billion more on the NHS, money that wouldn't be available if we'd listened to the Labour Party. Now he says that social care is a responsibility of government. Everything is a responsibility of government, but in fact it is local councils that decide how much to spend on social care, and with the Better Care Fund they have more to spend. But I challenge him again. How do we pay for the NHS? We pay for it by more growth, more jobs, more people having a livelihood. Is he going to welcome that at Christmas time, or doesn't he care about the reduction in unemployment? Mr. Mr. Speaker, I have a question from Abby. Abby. Abby wants to train to be a midwife, and she says, I'm 28 years old. This year I left my successful career to go back into university to retrain as a midwife. I already have a debt of 25,000 from my first degree. Well over half of my cohort have studied a first degree in another subject, and many of my fellow colleagues have children and partners with elderly parents and mortgages. Many people will be put off by the lack of financial support and massive debts. In the spirit of Christmas, will the Prime Minister have a word with his friend the Chancellor, sitting next to him, it can be done very quickly, um, to reverse the cuts in the nurse bursary scheme so that we do get people like Abby training to be midwives, which will help all of us in the future? Well, well, first of all, I I want Abby to train as a midwife, and I can guarantee that the funding will be there for her training, because there are thousands more midwives operating in the NHS today than when I became Prime Minister. Now, he mentions the question of nurse bursaries, and the truth is today, two out of three people who want to become nurses can't do that because of the constraints on the system, and our new system will mean many more doctors, many more nurses. Already we've got... 10,000 more doctors 
in the NHS since I became Prime Minister and 4,500 more nurses. But all of this is happening, Mr Speaker, because the economy is growing, because the deficit is falling, unemployment is coming down. You can fill up a tank of gas at less than a pound a litre. Wages are going up. Britain is getting stronger as we go into Christmas because our economy is getting stronger too. formed a new all-party group for the Armed Forces Covenant, which aims to scrutinise and support the fulfilment of the government's pledges to service personnel and their families. Would the Prime Minister join me in praising the incredible dedication of our armed forces and their families, especially those in my constituency of RAF Boomer, at this festive time when many are separated from their loved ones? And can he reaffirm his personal commitment to the House to delivering his Armed Forces Covenant in practice and in full? Can I thank my honourable friend for her question? She's absolutely right. As all of us get ready, hopefully, to spend time with our families this Christmas, there'll be many in our brave armed services who won't be able to do that because they'll be serving abroad or at home. So we should wish them the very best as Christmas comes. In terms of the military covenant, it is one of the things I'm proudest of that we did in the last five years, was putting that into law and every year adding to the military covenant, giving veterans priority in health care, increasing funding for veterans' mental health services, prioritising school places for children. Every year we've made progress on the Armed Forces Covenant, and every year I'm standing at this dispatch box, we'll continue to do so. Angus Robertson. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Uh, The Prime Minister will meet shortly with the heads of state and government of the European Union. Will he heed the advice of former Prime Minister John Major and stop flirting with leaving the European Union, which would be, in his words, very dangerous and against our national interests. What I will be doing is getting the best deal for Britain. That is what we should be doing. This government was the first to cut the EU budget. It was the first to veto a treaty, the first to bring back substantial powers to Britain. We got a great record on Europe and we'll get a good deal for the British people. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. We were reminded this week that there is a very strong majority in Scotland to remain within the European Union. And the Prime Minister has failed. I know his side doesn't like to hear it, but the Prime Minister has failed to give any guarantees that Scotland won't be forced out of the EU by the rest of the UK. Does he have any idea of the consequences of taking Scotland out of the EU against the wishes of voters in Scotland? This is a United Kingdom, and this is a United Kingdom issue. And what I would say to him, what I would say to him is, why is he so frightened of listening to the people and holding this historic referendum passed through both these Houses of Parliament in the last week? I say, get a good deal for Britain and then trust the people. Thank you, Speaker. The Prime Minister has previously visited RAF Waddington in my constituency of Lincoln, and I am sure will, like me, wish all the service personnel and their families well as they carry out operations during the Christmas period. Given that the United Kingdom is now conducting airstrikes over Syria as well as over Iraq, and in light of the Leytonstone attack, why is our country still not at the highest level of threat? Well, first of all, let me join my honourable friend in praising those at RAF Waddington who work round the clock to keep us safe in our country and are doing uh, such vital work. As he will know, the 
Uh, the threat level is set in this country not by politicians but by the Joint Terrorism Assessment Centre, JTAC. Uh, they currently set it at um, severe, which is the second highest level. So I can confirm what I said to the House on the 26th of November. The UK is already in the top tier of countries that Daesh is targeting. And I can also confirm that that part of my statement was cleared in advance by the Chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee. So the threat level today is severe which means that a terrorist attack is highly likely. That's been the case since August. The highest level is critical, which means you believe an attack is imminent. But were we to go to that level, it would be for JTAC to advise, not for ministers. Tulip Sadiq. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm proud to represent a constituency that boasts of seven synagogues, four mosques, over 35 churches and two temples. However, last night Donald Trump reiterated that one of these communities would not be allowed into America simply because of their religion, seemingly unaware of how divisive this is. In our country, we have legislation that stops people from entering the country who are deemed not to be conducive to public good. <laughs> Does the Prime Minister agree that the law should be applied equally to everyone, or should we be making exceptions for billionaire politicians? Yeah. Yeah. No, well, first of all, let me join the Honourable Lady in being proud of representing a country which I think has some claim to say we are one of the most successful multiracial, multi-faith, multi-ethnic countries anywhere in the world. There's more to do to build opportunity and fight discrimination. Now, I agree with her that it is right that we exclude people uh, when they are going to radicalise or encourage extremism. I happen to disagree with her about Donald Trump. I think his remarks are divisive, stupid and wrong. And I think if he came to visit our country, I think he'd unite us all against him. Mark Pawsey. Thank, thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, by the time the House next meets for questions, many people will have started their New Year's resolutions and for many that resolution will be to give up smoking. Given that Public Health England has recently stated that e-cigarettes are 95% safer than tobacco and half of the population is unaware of that fact, will the Prime Minister join me in highlighting the role that e-cigarettes can play in helping people give up tobacco for good? Uh, well, certainly as uh, someone who's been through this battle a number of times, eventually uh, relatively successfully, uh, lots of f people find different ways of doing it, and clearly for some people e-cigarettes are successful. I think we do need to be guided uh, by the experts. We should look at the report from Public Health uh, England, but it is promising to see that over a million people are estimated to have used uh, e-cigarettes to help them quit or have replaced smoking with e-cigarettes completely. So I think we should be making clear that this is a very legitimate path for many people to improve their health and therefore the health of the nation. Callum McCaig. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. During the referendum, the Prime Minister pledged to deliver carbon capture and storage at Peterhead, something he reiterated in the Tory party manifesto. Yet on the eve of the Paris climate talks, he pulled the plug. Can I ask the Prime Minister which he sees as the greatest betrayal, that of Scotland, that of, uh, of his manifesto, or that of the entire planet? Of course, the, the greatest success is the Paris Climate Change Talks, and I want to take this opportunity to pay tribute to the Secretary of State, who was one of the key negotiators who helped to deliver this global goal, which is so much better than what happened at Copenhagen, and better even than happened at Kyoto. Now, let me answer him directly on carbon capture and storage. In government, you have to make tough choices. You have to make decisions about technology that works and technology that isn't working. And we are spending the money 
on innovation, on energy storage, on small nuclear reactors, on other things, on energy heat systems for local communities that will make a difference. To govern is to choose, and we made the right choice. Nigel Adams. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This, this Friday sadly sees the closure of Britain's last deep coal mine at Kellingley in my constituency. Will my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, join me in thanking the hundreds of workers who will be working their last shift this Friday and also praise the thousands of workers whose bravery and hard graft over the last 50 years has helped warm our homes, power our factory and keep our lights on? I think my honourable friend speaks uh, very strongly for his constituents and I'm very happy to join him in thanking people who've worked so hard at that mine and elsewhere and obviously it is a difficult time and as part of the closure process the government has put nearly £18 million to ensure that the workers receive the same package as the miners that recently closed Thorsby and that finance has allowed the mine to keep on it's all very well, honourable members opposite shouting, can I just tell them something right, can I just tell them something Right, this is, this is the official policy of the Labour Party. Just, just, right, we must take action to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Right? That is their policy. Right? They've also got a policy, by the way, of reopening coal mines. So presumably what they're going to do is dig a big hole in the ground and then sit there and do nothing. What a metaphor for his leadership of his party. The Prime Minister promised during the election campaign that he would not restrict child benefits to two children. Since then, he's not only reneged on that, but as a result, he's brought in the, the rape clause for women who have, uh, in order for women to receive child benefits. Since July, I've asked a number of times to a number of his ministers, and nobody has been able to tell me how this will work. Will he now drop the two child policy and the rape clause? First of all, we have made absolutely clear, and let me make clear again, there is no question of someone who is raped and has a child of losing uh, their child tax credits or their child benefit. No question at all. But is it right for future claimants on um, universal credit to get payments for their first two children? I think that it is. Radal Jair-Wardener. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is my right honourable friend aware that thanks to the Chancellor's protection of the police budget, 108 more police officers are being recruited to protect the people of Hampshire? And while there is more to do in tackling crime in more rural areas, would you agree with me that this is an important step in prioritising the front line and the Home Office and Hampshire Constabulary have made real progress in making our police more effective, more efficient and more resilient? No, well, I'm delighted to join my honourable friend in saying that it was the right decision to make sure we have this extra funding for the police. By the end of the spending settlement, it is actually an increase of £900 million in cash terms by 2019-2020. I'm delighted there will be more officers on the street in Hampshire. But I come back to the same point. You cannot fund the NHS, you cannot fund the Home Office, you cannot fund the police unless you have a growing economy with more jobs, people paying their taxes and making sure you've got a strong and stable economy. And that is what What's happening in Britain today? Stewart. In his farewell speech, the outgoing uh, director of the British Museum said, The British Museum is perhaps the noblest dream that Parliament has ever dreamt. 
Parliament decided to make a place where the world could be under one roof, where the collection would be free to all, native or foreign, where every citizen would have the right to information and where all inquiry would be outside political control. Does the Prime Minister agree that the partnership, the workings of the British Museum, with such things as Birmingham Arts and Museum Galleries for the Interfaith Gallery next year is important, but that will not happen unless our museums and galleries continue to be funded properly? Well, well, first of all, let me join the Honourable Lady in paying tribute not only to the British Museum, which is an absolute jewel in the British uh, cultural crown, but also to Neil McGregor, who gave it such extraordinary uh, leadership. She, she will, given her heritage, will, will perhaps be amused by the fact that uh, when they put on that brilliant exhibition about Germany, I took Chancellor Merkel to show her this fantastic, fantastic exhibition, and the next thing I knew, the Germans had poached Neil McGregor to run their cultural institute in, in Germany. But nonetheless, in the spirit of uh, European cooperation that is going to be very vital this week. I'm, I'm happy to see that happen. But I do want to see the British Museum conti- complete all of its partnerships, not just across the United Kingdom, but also internationally. And she will have seen that in the autumn statement, the British Museums got a funding settlement with which they were rightly very pleased. Fiona Bruce. According to Oxfam, the UK has donated a generous 229% of its fair share of aid in support of Syrian refugees, the highest percentage of the G8. Yet worldwide, only 44% of what is needed by those refugees has been donated. Does the Prime Minister agree it's critical that other countries step up to the plate, as the UK has more than done? And would he update the House on progress in support of Syrian refugees? Well, first of all, can I say how much I agree with my honourable friend? Britain is doing its moral duty in terms of funding the refugees and the refugee camps. We're going to hold this conference in February, bringing the world together to make sure there's more funding in future, uh, and that's going to be absolutely vital. In terms of the number of refugees that we have resettled, I made a promise that we would resettle a thousand by Christmas and I can confirm today that we've met our commitment to resettle a thousand refugees by Christmas. The charter flights that arrived yesterday at Stansted and Belfast mean that over a thousand have been settled. Another charter flight is coming today. The government has provided funding so that all these refugees get housing, get health care, get education and I want to thank all the local authorities and all those who've worked so hard including my honourable friend the member for Watford who has led this process so ably because I said that Britain would do its duty and with these thousand we've made a very good start. Douglas Carswell. Three years ago the Prime Minister couldn't have been any clearer. His EU renegotiation would mean returning control over social and employment law. Is he still seeking that? Well, I I always find it hard to satisfy the Honourable Gentleman because, of course, he joined the Conservative Party when we weren't committed to a referendum and he left the Conservative Party after we committed to a referendum. So I'm not surprised that he's giving his new boss as much trouble as he used to give me. Um, But but with that, I wish them both a very festive Christmas. Oliver Dowden. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The triumphant Star Wars saga began life at Elstree Studios in my constituency, which continues to produce hits such as The King's Speech and Suffragette. The Honourable Gentleman is banging on very eloquently about Star Wars, and I want to hear it. 
Prime Minister join me in pledging support for our thriving British film industry, which makes such a valuable social, cultural and economic contribution in Hartsmere and across the United Kingdom. I think my honourable friend raises an important point because this is not only very exciting for children and I have to say quite a lot of parents are looking forward to this film but this is a film being made in Britain with many British actors with some brilliant British technicians showing the strength of the British film industry and I would say this but also backed by the British government and British taxpayers with the excellent resources that we provide and let me just say to my honourable friend as I've worked with him for so many years in so many different ways I know that he will never join the dark side. <laughs> Marion Fellows! Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Despite the ongoing efforts of the Scottish Steel Task Force, my constituents at the DL Steel Plant and the neighbouring Clyde Bridge Works are starting to receive redundancy notices. Given the urgency of the situation, will the Prime Minister put pressure on the EU now to reach a quicker decision on permitting the EII compensation scheme? And if this permission is granted, will he also commit to implement this scheme as soon as possible to provide much needed breathing space for our steel sector? and to give some hope for my constituents this Christmas. I think the Honourable Lady is absolutely right to raise this. We are working as hard as we can in Europe to try and get the energy-intensive industries uh, plan cleared, and I can confirm to her that as soon as it is cleared, the money will be available for the British steelmaking uh, companies. We expect this to be in place no later than uh, uh, April 2017, but it should be much earlier than that, and we're working around the clock to try and get that done. Nicola Black. Mr Speaker, the tragic stabbing in Abingdon Poundland last week has shocked local residents. I'm sure the whole House will want to join me in sending our condolences to the family of father of two, Justin Skrabowski, who was killed in the attack, and to honour the bravery of those who overpowered the attacker with no thought of risk to themselves. But in the light of this attack, Does the Prime Minister agree it is now time for the government and retailers to work together to make it more difficult for offenders to get hold of offensive weapons in the first place? As my honourable friend's constituency neighbour, I was very shocked by what happened in in Abingdon, uh, and my heart goes out to the the, the family of those who have suffered. I think she is right to ask the question about uh, offensive weapons and how available they are, and I am very happy to look at that. I also think with that attack and also the Leytonstone attack, although unrelated, it is right also to look at uh, the resources that our police have in terms of the equipment they have. There is a very different uh, uh, usage pattern for tasers, for instance, across the country, and this is something the Home Secretary the Metropolitan Police and, and I are discussing. Danny Kinnahan. Thank you very much. Prime Minister, there's nothing I believe more passionately than in the union, and yet with European. Scottish yeah. nationalism, European union. English votes for English laws, various powerhouses and city deals, and the creation of numerous other measures that may threaten a union. What is the Prime Minister's vision for that union and for holding the four countries together? And would he he please come and speak to the union or party group at some stage in the future? But even more importantly, would he help with a campaign throughout the union because we're better together? 
like uh, the Honourable Gentleman, I'm passionate about our United Kingdom, and I believe we can make it stronger by accepting that it is a partnership of nations, and a partnership of nations where we should treat each other with respect. I, I, I don't want to listen to the SNP. They don't want a partnership. They want a separation. But actually, one of the things that is so strong about the United Kingdom, and that I think other countries, frankly, are quite jealous of, is we've demonstrated that you can have multiple identities. You can be proud of being an Ulsterman and a Brit. You can be proud of being a Hindu and a Scot. You can be proud of being both Welsh and British. We've solved one of the problems that the rest of the world is grappling with. And that's why we should keep our United Kingdom together. Mr Speaker, uh, as uh, we approach the festival marking, <laughs> marking the birth of Jesus Christ... Order. There was some notably eccentric gesticulation <laughs> taking place from you, Mr. McNeil, but you should desist. <laughs> Calm yourself, man. Go and celebrate if you wish, but we must hear the honourable gentleman, and he will be heard. Yeah, yeah. Sir Gerald Howard. Mr. Speaker, as we approach the festival marking the birth of Jesus Christ, may I invite uh, the Prime Minister to send out a message of support to those millions of fellow Christians around the world who are suffering persecution. Yeah. Yeah. May I also uh, invite him once again to remind the British people that we are con a country fashioned by our Christian heritage and it is that heritage which has <coughs> resulted in our giving refuge to so many of other faiths over so many centuries but that we will not tolerate those who abuse our freedom to try to inflict their alien and uh, violent uh, fashions upon us, yeah, yeah. particularly in the name of Islam. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, let me uh, join him in saying that we should do everything we can to defend and protect the rights of, of Christians to practice their faith the world over. And that is an important part of our foreign policy. And let me commend also Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, for the excellent work uh, that he does on that basis. Look, I, I believe that, yes, Britain is a Christian country, and the fact that we have an established faith and we understand the faith, the, the place of faith in our national life makes us a more tolerant nation and better able to accommodate other faith groups in our country and that's why as I said earlier in this session I think we should be proud of the fact that this is one of the most successful multi-ethnic multi-faith multi-religion democracies anywhere in the world and that is not in conflict with our status as a predominantly Christian country I think it's one of the reasons why we've done it last but not least Sue Heyman Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Prime Minister, I'm, I know the Prime Minister is aware of the flooding that's taken place in my constituency and the damage to the town of Cockermouth. I've had a call from a constituent this morning to say insurance companies are refusing to pay or help my constituents until they have paid the excess in full. Does he agree with me? This is absolutely outrageous. Some of these excesses are up to £10,000. And what can be done to ensure that they fulfil their obligations to my constituents? Well, she's absolutely right to raise this. First of all, the Minister for Government Policy, uh, the Honourable Member, right away for West Dorset, has had meetings with the insurance companies to make sure that this sort of practice doesn't happen. That's the first point. The second thing is that we have announced putting money into the community funds that will form hardship funds to help people potentially who don't have insurance. And the third and vital thing is the establishment of flood re, which for the future will mean that all homes are able to get that insurance. That was a decision made by the last government, and we're putting it in place. Order.